What a beautiful thing to be reminded of this, this access we have to God through this friend we have in Jesus. Jesus makes it possible for us to have access to this holy God. And, you know, last week as David preached from Revelation 4, we heard about the throne room. And, um, and, and it's right to ask this question, how can, how can we go from, uh, how can we access the, the throne room of God to this, this holy God? And how is it that we can have, that Jesus can be our friend, that, that somehow Jesus is our friend is going to give us access into that holy throne room? And, and that's the question we want to unpack as we look at Scripture this morning. But we want to start where we left off last week in examining the throne room in Revelation 4. Remember as uh, David described that and as John in his vision in Revelation describes it, John sees the Lord seated upon the throne and, and there's this bright light that is the light of his glory and his presence and, and it's shining and it's beautiful colors and there's 24 thrones around the Lord's throne and those are the thrones of the 24 elders and beyond that there's a sea that is like crystal and thunder and lightning are coming out of the light and bright presence of God and, and near the throne, there are four um, living creatures. With they are, they're magnificent looking with eyes and, and um, wings. And they are proclaiming unceasing praise, followed by the 24 elders proclaiming unceasing praise. And we have this beautiful scene, an and intimidating scene almost. And it begs the question, as I thought about this scene this week, can I stand in that throne room? Am I worthy to stand in that throne room? And I think about how, uh, you know, this John's vision was um, metaphorically representing or illustrating this spiritual reality that is the central spiritual reality in all reality of what goes on in the throne room. And there's a sense in which that spiritual reality plays the backdrop to all of the physical scene reality that we experience on a daily basis. So there's a sense in which if that is the, the spiritual reality that is the backdrop to all that we experience, then then perhaps I shouldn't ask, can I stand in the throne room? Because I'm in the throne room, and the question is, what is my posture in the throne room? So last week we were challenged with the posture that we should have in the throne room is flat on our face before the Lord, humbly worshiping Him. And now we have to be realistic and ask ourselves the question, why is that is that my posture in the throne room? Is that the way I have been responding to the Lord this week, flat on my face in worship? Or am I kind of half-heartedly humming along while my eyes are looking at other things, other interests, and I'm humming along to the praise of this God who deserves my glory? Is that my posture more realistically in the throne room. Or maybe, you know, you think, maybe you, you look at this 
great, intimidating, incredible God, and you, your posture is you are cowered in the corner um, when you think of how big God is and you think about the difficulty of the circumstances of life, and, and your posture is, is trembling in the corner. Or perhaps your posture is you know there's a God to be worshipped, and for now, your back is to Him and your eyes are on other things your career goals, your, your family maybe even, your recreational interest. One day you'll worship this God who deserves to be praised, but for now, your back's to him and your eyes are on other things. What is your posture in the throne room? Last week, the passage that we looked at was instructing us towards a humble posture. The passage we're going to look at this morning is going to instruct us about a confident posture. Now, the confident posture that we'll look at this morning does not contradict the humble posture that we looked at last week. In fact, it actually complements the humble posture that we looked at last week. This passage in Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, which I invite you to turn to, it it invites us into something that, that I think could be described as humble confidence in the throne room. So I want you to turn with me to Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Father, as we approach your word this morning, I thank you for the gift that is this revealed word that you have given us so that we might know you more and more. Speak to us through your word. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. So Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 starts off, it says, therefore, since now the therefore, the author of Hebrews has just talked about the supremacy of Christ. Christ is greater than all the angels, greater than all the prophets. So therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Hold firmly. So that's like when you're water skiing behind a boat being tugged 30 miles an hour, you're holding firmly to that rope. Or if you're being tugged on the tube behind that boat, you're holding firmly to that inner tube. Or, or maybe, as, as I experienced as a young father, and I come out of the dentist's office, and the dentist has this wonderful creative gift for my kids when they do well in the dentist's office, they get a helium balloon. And what happens when they walk outside of the dentist's office? They're all excited about this balloon and they let it go, never to be seen or played with again. So as a young father, when you walk out of that dentist's office, what did I learn? To hold firmly to that balloon <laughs> so that my kids could have it when they got home. Hold firmly to the hope, the faith that we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Now, we don't currently live or follow a ritualistic sacrificial system where there is a great high priest that is tasked to represent us and make us clean before a holy God. 
Yet, the original hearers of this text, that was a, a, a sacrificial system that they were very familiar with. It was a, um, for many of them, uh, they still followed at least a tainted version of this kind of sacrificial system. So I want to help us step into what this sacrificial system was by looking at uh, Leviticus 16. And I'm going to read through a list here in Leviticus 16 in a moment to help us understand what would have been going on in the sacrificial system. You don't need to turn there with me. I'll, I'll kind of walk us through it. In verse 2 in chapter 16, the Lord says to Moses, Tell your brother Aaron that he is not to come anywhere he chooses, or I'm sorry, he is not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place behind the curtain in front of the atonement cover on the ark, or else he will die. So the most holy place, that represents the presence of God and Moses is being reminded that you can't just enter willy-nilly into the presence of God or you will die. So it's kind of like if God is a consuming fire, um, what happens when a dry leaf gets near a consuming fire? It burns up. So it's not because the fire is being mean to the, the leaf. It's just it's because of the fire is what the fire is and the dry leaf is what the dry leaf is. When sinful people come into the presence of a holy God, we, we can't, we die in his presence. That's what God is making clear to Moses for Aaron's sake right now. Something needs to change about Aaron. Something needs to be put on and transformed in order for Aaron to be a sinful person, to be in the presence of a holy God. So let's keep going with Leviticus. So God instructs, this is how Aaron is to enter the most holy place. We read as we go on that as he enters the holy place, first of all, he can only do this on the 10th day of the seventh month. So it only happens once a year. Aaron is to put on a linen, a sacred linen tunic and wrap um, these, uh, this um, sash around him and, and put a linen turban on. And these garments are sacred, so he has to bathe himself with water before he puts them on. And then he brings a young bull as a sin offering. He brings two young goats and he casts lots for them. One will be sacrificed, one will be set free as a scapegoat. Then he slaughters the bull, and we read in verses 12 that he is to take a censer full of burning coals from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of finely ground fragrant incense and take them behind the curtain. He is to put the incense on the fire before the Lord, and the smoke of the incense will conceal the atonement covenant above the tablets of the covenant law so that he will not die. He is to take some of the bull's blood with his finger, sprinkle it on the front of the atonement cover. Then he shall sprinkle some of it with his finger seven times before the atonement cover. So this, this is complicated. It keeps going. He shall then slaughter the goat after the bull, now the goat for the sin offering of the people, and take its blood behind the curtain and do the same thing to its blood that he did to the blood of the bull. Then... He shall take some of the bull's blood and some of the goat's blood and put it on the horns of the altar. He shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times to cleanse it and to consecrate it from uncleanness of the Israelites. 
When Aaron has finished making this atonement for the most holy place, in the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall bring forward a live goat. He is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and the rebellion of Israel, all their sins, and to put, on, put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the wilderness. All right, the instructions keep coming. This is important, these, the, all these instructions. Then Aaron is to go into the tent of meeting and take off the linen garments and put, that he put on before he entered the most holy place. He is to leave them there. He shall bathe himself with water in the sanctuary area and put on his regular garments. Then he shall come out of the sacrifice, out and sacrifice the burnt offering for himself and the burnt offering for the people to make atonement for himself and for the people. He shall also burn the fat of the sin offering on the altar. Then before the Lord, you Israelite people will be clean from your sins. That is a long and complicated list of instructions. I don't know about you, but I am stressed out by a list of complicated instructions. I don't want to tell you how long it took me to study and look through this to kind of generally get a feel for what was going on with Aaron following these instructions. I often fix waffles for my family um, on Saturday mornings, and I have to follow a list of instructions in the recipe for the waffles. And, and I think it's pretty complicated, and, and I get stressed out every week following this list of instructions. And so, you know, two and a half cups of flour, is it wheat flour or white flour, or does it matter? And, and then it's a tablespoon, uh, a fourth of a tablespoon of baking powder, um, so a tablespoon or a teaspoon? What was the difference? Tablespoon. So was it a fourth or a half of table? And baking soda or baking powder? And was that a fourth? And so I have to go back on this list and, and it stresses me out every week. So here's what I know. If I was the high priest and I was responsible to follow this long list of instructions in order to make you all holy before the living God, whew, you would be in trouble. Be that as it may, this was the Jewish framework for right standing with the living God. It depended upon a sinful high priest walking through a very complex ritual. So when the author of Hebrews speaks of a great high priest who ascended into heaven, Jesus, who is the Son of God, that's an amazing contrast with the sinful, undependable high priest that the Jewish nation would have known for centuries. Jesus is our perfect high priest. He accomplishes perfectly what, what the, the ritual in Leviticus 16 see, sought to point to. And Jesus accomplished that perfectly once and for all. And here's how he did it. Jesus entered the most holy place. He entered the throne room and he had with him the perfect offering. The perfect offering was his life given as an atonement for sins in the place of our lives. So we are familiar with this perfect offering as we read the gospel accounts of what Jesus did as he went to the cross and he was crucified for our sake. We don't often think about the, the spiritual account of this offering, which David referred to last week. It's in, in Revelation 5, and I want to 
invite you to turn there with me. Revelation 5 unpacks the the spiritual reality of, of this offering, and it's absolutely amazing. John describes this as after he had described the throne room. He's continuing, and he says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals, And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? Now, um, and then it says, But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth would open the scroll or even look inside it. So it's kind of complicated to think of what this scroll and these seals represent. But they represent something of the knowledge of God and an understanding of God. So in this throne room where all these creatures and elders are worshiping this incredible holy God because they know he's holy, they, he holds these scrolls that, that give knowledge of him and and no one can open them. No one can have relationship with this perfect and holy God who are there praising. No one can have relationship with him because no one can open the scrolls, this word, this revelation of who he is. So it's no wonder that John writes, and I wept and I wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep, see The lion, the tribe of Judah, the root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if he had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. And the lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which were the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bulls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open the seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them a kingdom and priest to serve our God and they will reign on earth. Then I looked up and I heard a voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders in a loud voice they were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. This is what happened in the heavenly throne room when our Savior presented his perfect offering and all of heaven shouts out together, worthy is the Lamb. Jesus is our perfect high priest. He entered into the throne room and gave a perfect sacrifice. We who put faith in Jesus are completely covered now by his sacrifice. We can now enter into the throne room. We can know God. 
We can have confidence before God, not a prideful confidence of what we've achieved, but a humble confidence in the power of what Jesus accomplished for us. So we can exist in the throne room with a posture of worshiping the Lord gratefully and sacrificially and freely and exclusively and passionately and humbly, and we can do so confidently. We are no longer a dry leaf before a consuming fire. We have been transformed and we can stand with confidence, with humble confidence before the living God. Because Jesus was fully God, his perfect sacrifice on our behalf is 100% dependable. He is strong and completely capable. He is our perfect and loving Savior. And not only is he capable, but he is compassionate. We look at verse 15 in verse 4 of Hebrews and we're reminded that for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. This strong and perfect Savior does not stand aloof or stoic at a distance, but he comes and wraps us up with compassion. We can know this compassionate God. He wraps us up in his arms with understanding. He whispers his love with soothing tenderness. He promises his protection with hair-raising power. So it's good for us to ask, what's my posture in this throne room? I want it to be humble confidence. I know I'm weak. I know that my motivations are never 100% correct. I want to seem impenetrable, but I can be hurt so easily. I want for my rest to be in God alone, but circumstances turn me upside down every day. I am weak and needy, and that's the story of every single one of us. Our confidence before the Lord, though, in the throne room does not depend on how we're doing. It depends on what Jesus did. That's humble confidence. So what might living in the throne room with humble confidence look like for us this week? To be in the throne room is to recognize there's a king to be praised. So how am I praising him this coming week? To be humble is to recognize that that I am small and he is great. So how does that play out for you this week? To be confident in that throne room is to know that your salvation is secure because of what Christ did for us on the cross. So I set my confidence in him, not in my own ability, not in circumstances, but my confidence is in him. That's humble confidence in the throne room. On the night before Jesus was crucified, and made all of this possible for us. He, he came to his disciples and he presented them with, with a meal. A, a meal in many ways we could think that this was a meal that they could share with him in the throne room. That we can share with God in the throne room because we have access to him.